Hello and welcome back to Execute. How are you all doing? I hope everybody's doing really, really well out there. In today's episode, I'm answering some really great questions. And I'm also going to be putting some questions back to you guys that are going to support you in moving forward as you reflect on the information and the guidance that I'm giving you. So the questions I'm answering this episode are how to powerfully position yourself on LinkedIn, how to make cold calls feel exciting and not sleazy, horrid, degrading, how to delegate work effectively so the job gets done. This is a great question. And is it worth being a member of the BIID? So really, really broad ranging questions here. We're covering marketing, selling, team, leadership, the whole spectrum of what you guys are going to be coming up against in the day to day. So I love them. Let's jump in and get you some answers. So the first question around LinkedIn. Essentially, to make the most of LinkedIn, we want to recognize that it's different from other social media platforms. But at the same time, we want to recognize that there's a lot of crossover and overlap. Any kind of social media is about making connections, encouraging engagement, encouraging collaborations, tagging other people, making those connections with strategic partners or companies that you've collaborated with, commenting, asking good questions of your audience, responding to other people's questions and comments. Social media loves, loves engagement. So that's a really important thing to recognize. And I would really, and you know, I'll preface it by saying I'm not a LinkedIn expert. It's a platform that I'm present on, but it's not one that I'm doubling down on. There are people out there who absolutely specialize in LinkedIn. A name I've got for you, it might be worth checking out, is Tracy Enos. So that's E-N-O-S. She's an American woman who has had huge, huge, huge success and now does a lot of training and mentorship around LinkedIn specifically. But I want to give you some generic things to think about today. So I really want you to just think about coming back to what we talked about inside Aligned for Growth in module three, which is around differentiating yourself, attracting people, and then directing them. So what are you going to be posting on LinkedIn that's going to make you stand out in the minds of your ideal client? What is it that's going to stop them scrolling and have them liking, engaging, DMing you? So the first is we want to think, well, how are we going to stand out amongst all the other noise? And then how are we going to attract them into thinking, oh, okay, this person maybe has a solution to my problem. Again, this is about being problem aware. This is about demonstrating that we go beyond just posting a pretty picture, like a A pretty picture might do that initial stop the scroll, but it's the context around it that's going to establish you as an expert and potentially someone who has the solution to their problem. That's what's going to start them thinking of you as, okay, this is someone who I might like to work with. And then we want to be directing them. So what I can say is that LinkedIn doesn't like outward clicks. So saying to people, you know, head to my website, LinkedIn's not going to push that kind of content forward. Like any social media, they like to keep people on the platform. So the call to action on LinkedIn would be a direct message. 
The other thing I think it's just worth mentioning is you can have a company profile on LinkedIn, but most of the networking is done because ultimately LinkedIn is a professional networking site. It's done through personal connections. So you can absolutely have a company profile, but most of your updates, your posts, your um, tagging people, your conversations that you're having is going to be done through your personal profile. So you can absolutely be posting to your company profile, but I would be definitely replicating that on your personal. Or if you've not got a company one yet, just post everything from your personal. And yeah, be tagging strategic partners. So what I mean by that is architects, estate agents, surveyors, contractors, anybody in your network, suppliers, companies that you've collaborated with, it essentially is like a good old networking event all online. So that networking and that engagement is is really important. And it's it's really just about offering up content that is targeted, clear and valuable. So it's not about us creating content for us. Look, I, you know, made this nice room or look, I've done this lovely render or look at my beautiful floor plans. It's about what value is this giving to your people? So if your content is directed at potential clients, it is about we help people like you to go from, you know, overwhelmed, too many decisions, desperately want a beautiful home, don't know how to get there. And we do it by and you can take them through your process and then you can invite them to contact you. So it's we always want content to be relevant and valuable to our audience. That's what's going to keep people interested in what you're offering. Otherwise, there's no reason for them to be in your network and for them to pay any attention. So the questions I would be asking, the questions I want to put to you are, what is working elsewhere in your marketing that you can double down on inside of LinkedIn? What content is working elsewhere? What's getting engagement? Where are you seeing people who potentially are your ideal client? So not the posts that your mom likes or your best friend always high fives. What is the content that your ideal client is engaging with? And how can you replicate or double down on that style and way of producing that content on LinkedIn? And the second question is really think about committing to a certain rhythm and consistency of showing up on LinkedIn for, let's say, 60 to 90 days, because we want to give something a really solid amount of time to trial something, see if it's working, and then objectively assess it. So once you've thought about what that content's going to be, really think, what can I commit to realistically? Can I commit to 30 minutes a day, five days a week? Can I commit to one hour, three days a week, for example, just if you really be intentional about setting that time, blocking that time in your calendar. And then when you come to the end of that time period that you've set, then you can step back and say, okay, where did I start? You know, look at where you are now. And then you've got something to measure against. Where am I now? What worked? What didn't work? What got engagement? What led to an inquiry? Okay. Let us know how you get on with this. I'm really keen to to hear. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question, which is a great question. It's around how to make cold calls exciting 
and not feel degrading. And as with everything, you guys have heard me talk about this, with everything in business, it is always that balance between the strategic and the mindset. So if we just think, forget the kind of uh, emotion, all the mindset drama that comes up around doing sales calls, cold calls, all of that stuff, let's park that for a moment. First, strategy. We want to be objectively assessing our cold calls the best way to differentiate ourselves. Maybe yes, but we really want to look objectively at our services and our target audience. So here in this example, we're talking about B2B. So other businesses who you could potentially collaborate with, who might bring you in on a project, might commission your services and so on. You have to put yourself in their shoes and be aware of the problems that they are facing every day and what's going to make you somebody who they can see it is worth their time engaging with, the value for them. I'm going to guess that anybody in the category we've talked about, architects, surveyors, contractors, estate agents, interior designers, anybody who you potentially want to collaborate with are busy, time pressured. They want to win work and make money just as much as you do. So what's in it for them? And just sitting with that question for a moment and really reflecting on what would make you as a business owner want to talk to somebody, another supplier, for example. For me, in my business, if a supplier came to me, you know, which happened frequently all the time. Hi, we're a supplier of blah, blah, blah. Can we come to your studio? Can we show you these? Can we send you a brochure? It was always the people who aesthetically there is an alignment. So somebody has gone out of their way to say, I can see the kind of work you do. This is what we do. I believe there is an alignment. That personal touch. So we saw this project that you did on blah, blah, blah road. Um, I love the touch that you did on that joinery or the furniture or the upholstery, whatever it is, personal mention. We do stuff exactly like this. We would love to collaborate with you. We believe our designs or our services or our way of doing drawings or renders or whatever the services you're looking to collaborate with somebody on are. We support work like this because this is how we, we do what we do. So being personal, demonstrating that there is already an aesthetic alignment, that there is an overlap between their vibe and your vibe is important. Telling them how much you love what they do. Nobody wants a kind of chat GPT also respond, you know, hey, just reaching out today to, <laughs> to you know, speak to the owner of the company. You know, it's just so that they just get, you know, these emails, these calls, it's just going to be completely deleted, phone put down immediately. So it has to be personal and it has to start with I'm so excited by what you do. Just on that, it may be worth sending an email to try to book an appointment before doing a call. That may be a better way. You're going to get less people on the phone than if you picked up the phone, but you may also get less um, phone put down on you. But that's something to think about. I've worked with um, 
a supplier to the, you know, when I first started this business, I tend to work more now with designers. But when I first started in design and align, I worked with a couple of suppliers as well. And I worked with somebody who makes beautiful, beautiful products for the industry. And her way of doing business was already about doing cold calls, but we simply made it about what's in it for the people you're phoning up. So in her case, it was interior designers. And how can you bring your passion and your excitement and your absolute belief in your product to those calls? Because that's going to be the difference. If people can feel your excitement and your absolute belief in what you're trying to sell to them, they're going to be interested. If you sound bored, scared, not believing in yourself, like you don't want to be on the call, they definitely are not going to want to be on the call. Another thing I want to share with you is when I started my studio, well, no, not when I started my studio, when I took on my business partner and we expanded and we took on a studio space, a workspace, we shared that workspace with now a very, very prestigious garden design company. But and they they were pretty up and coming when we shared with them, but we would share stories about business development. And the owner of this garden design company said to me, when they started their business, she came from the corporate world. So she had a kind of salesy sales experience from the corporate world, but completely new to this industry. New company, no connections really. It, It was cold calling. And she committed to making three calls three days every week so that's a total of nine calls a week and she was very targeted about who she wanted to speak to and for her they were garden design so on her hit list it was the don't move improve list of the kind of architecture awards architects were doing interesting things with clients who have budget that was where she started her hit list of targets but it didn't it didn't matter. It was simply as this was an, as much about committing to the practice of making those calls and every call, understanding and learning a bit more about what works and what doesn't work. I learned this absolutely. My calls are not cold calls, but I do business consultations all the time. And I have absolutely learned over a couple of years of doing these calls, what questions work really well, what people respond to the pacing that works. And and I will say one thing, which is even though you're the one making the call, letting the person talk to you about what their problem is, is a huge part of it. So we talked about this in module four about the, um, the sales process when you're actually pitching on something, but it applies to sales calls or cold calls as well. It's about you saying that, I I understand that you, you've got a problem, which is, you know, you don't have enough people to do this for you, or you need to collaborate with someone who knows how to do this or whatever the, the thing that you're selling is. And just ask, you know, tell me more about that. I'd love to hear more about, you know, how, what that is for you and holding space for them to tell you more is hugely 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 important if we're constantly trying to jump in and ask the next question or talk about us and how good we are and about our product and about our service they're just going to want to get off the phone so really consider what are the pertinent questions 
that you can inject into your calls where you've obviously made that initial connection. You've done the work to establish that I know what you do. I love what you do. I feel like there's a connection here. I'd love to hear more from your point of view. And then resist the urge to jump in and tell them more and more and more about you. Absolutely. If they ask questions, answer them. But the best way to build that rapport and that connection and that genuine relationship, which is what we want to happen. We want to build a relationship with someone who potentially we could work with. Then it is about holding space and letting them talk. So questions for you. The first question is, what do you want? And this probably sounds super basic, but this brings us back to the other part of the the coin. So we've talked about the strategy, but it comes back to the mindset part of, of doing any kind of sales calls, cold calls, anything like this. Because if we come to it thinking, oh, I need to do calls. I need to put myself out there. I need to call those three people this week. Oh, I can't bear it. It's always going to feel heavy. We're always going to feel resistance. We're always going to feel that we don't want to do it. And that resistance will absolutely be felt. So just by asking this question, what do you want? We can connect back to that desire that we have inside us to get our creativity and our work out into the world to help people with their problems, to provide a solution by bringing forward this product or service or whatever it is we're trying to sell to make money that's going to support us or our family. By really being honest with ourselves about what we want, we can connect back to our core purpose in having this business having this service, desiring to get our work out there and just reframing that in our minds as it's not, I need to do sales calls. It's I want to connect with people who potentially are excited about what I do. I want to make connections that can support my business. I want to grow my business and make money from it. So asking that very simple question, what do you want? can unlock so much more and really bring you back to the desire that you have and the reason you're doing this and take you out of that feeling of it being heavy and, and, (laughs) okay. The next question is what does your target audience want? So we've talked about the fact everybody is busy, time pressured, trying to do their best work, trying to find solutions for their clients trying to be cost efficient, time efficient, time to make money, and so on. So what is it that you are going to be able to add to them? How can you connect the dots between these two places, what you want and what they want? So you have a service that you want to get out there. You want to collaborate with more people because you can see it as a way of you doing more work you doing better work, you expanding your business, bringing in more money. They want potentially the same thing, to be able to broaden their service by collaborating with someone who can plug a gap in what they currently offer. Potentially, they want someone who can be the the boots on the ground on site if that's not what they particularly want to do and that's the service that you can provide. So it's always recognizing what you want 
what they want, and then joining those dots between the two things. Okay, I'm going to leave this here. Just remember on this one, you have to believe beyond anything in your services. You have to believe beyond any doubt that you have a service and a solution that is of value to people. Okay, hold on to that thought and let me know how it all goes. Okay, next question. Delegating work and how to give really clear instructions and make sure the work gets done. So this is a great question because (laughs) I speak to a lot of designers who have team. I have team myself. And sometimes there is a problem with the team. And sometimes we haven't brought on the right people. Sometimes they don't have the right skills. Sometimes they don't have the right attitude. Sometimes they did have the right skills, but they no longer do because the needs of the business has evolved. All of these things can happen. But often what I can also see is we think there is a problem with the team, that people aren't doing what we want them to do. But it's not always the team. It can be the leadership. My mentor has this great analogy about leadership. She says it's like, who are my dog people out here? She says it's like getting a new puppy, bringing them into your home, and then just crossing your fingers that they're not going to wee and poo all over the floor. But the reality is, if you want to train the puppy, you have to train the owner. So this is bringing it back to your leadership of a team. Everything is going to hang on your ability to lead your team, the way that you are embodying that role of a leader. You can absolutely hire someone. You can write a job description, you can bring someone in, you can pay them the money. But if you aren't ready to work on your leadership, that money will often be wasted. And this is, you know, our business is going to go through different stages. It's going to evolve, it's going to ebb and flow. We're going to have great clients. We're going to have clients we you know, didn't love quite as much. We're going to have different projects. And hopefully we are going to, to grow it overall and grow the income and potentially grow the team. That doesn't mean you need to be running a multi-million pound, you know, 500 staff at all. I know that that's not what many of us, most of us aspire to. But No matter what season your business is in, your leadership is the number one thing to be working on at all times. And here's the problem. Most of us, especially as creative business leaders, are not managers or team leaders. We've either not done this role or it's not a role we particularly want to do. We love having the big ideas. We love doing the design, the creative, but managing a team and getting the best out of your people, that is a whole other thing. It is a whole other thing. And it takes massive self-awareness and incredible emotional intelligence. And lots of business owners are like, "Uh, I already have enough to do. I just need you to do your job. I've brought you in. There is the ad. There's the job description. There are my files. Now go get on with it. That's just not how it works. 
you have to elevate, you have to focus, you have to assess, do you have the right people? Are you hiring the right people? Are you hiring in the right way to bring on not just the skills that you need, the practical skills, you know, can they draw? Can they go to site? Can they have a conversation with somebody? But also the right culture and attitude. Are they going to be proactive? Are they going to understand and be able to discern between a problem you need to know about and a problem you don't need to know about? Are they going to be accountable? This is such a big one. It's such an important one. Are you hiring people who are able to hold up their hands and say, I messed up here. This is what I'm doing about it. Are they going to be proactive in finding solutions? Hey, I had this problem, you know, or hey, we've got we've got this big problem. Here are three of my ideas on what we should do. That's very different to someone coming to you and going, hey, there's a big problem. What should we do? Because every time someone makes their problem your problem, you're having to give up mental bandwidth to now solving a problem. So if somebody comes to you already with three ideas on what to do, that's huge. That's amazing. So this comes back to how you are bringing people onto your team How are you assessing whether they're going to be the right fit, not only have the right skills? And are you willing to have hard conversations with your team? This is a really big one. We can be very worried about having a hard conversation with a team member who's not performing because we're terrified of them leaving. We're terrified about suddenly being overburdened with work if someone wants to go. We're terrified about not being liked by our team, but our job isn't to be liked, it's to lead, okay? When it comes to my team, I genuinely find that you cannot over-communicate, but this doesn't mean sharing every single tiny detail about your business, your life, your clients. It absolutely doesn't mean making your problems as the business owner your team's problems as the people working in the business. You have to be really discerning about what problems you're prepared to take on your shoulders and hold and deal with yourself and what actually you're going to share and communicate because that's part of the the way of running a small team is sharing your goals, sharing how close you are to achieving those goals, whether it's about clients, business one, money in, whatever. But there needs to be a filter and a discernment. What it does mean is over communicating about the role that you need them to perform. And that starts with being so clear on the purpose. Often we will run to write a job description and it will be, you know, producing drawings or going to site or, you know, organizing the sample closet or whatever it is. And it'll be a list of tasks. But There's this amazing quote, which is, if you want to build a ship, then don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. So that's really something to reflect on is how you are communicating that much bigger purpose around what you're doing. So for me and my team, I'm constantly communicating to my team that you guys can work out the details, you can organize the tech, you can shape the experience. But for me, my biggest priority is that any client who comes into my business, who comes into my world, I want them to have an amazing experience. 
I want us to be so customer centric in the way that we are thinking and doing and constantly looking to improve on that. So you now go off and figure out the details of that and they'll go off and work out the tech and flag where things aren't working and say, hey, I think we could, you know, tweak our offboarding questionnaire or I think we could be clearer in our onboarding or whatever it is. They will figure out the details. But I have set that overarching goal and that's really important. So questions for you. How can you communicate your expectations around the role that you want your team to perform? And that's not just about the tasks themselves. It's about their place, their role as part of the bigger picture, their place within your company. How are you going to continue to check in with them? We absolutely don't want to bring somebody into our team, you know, hand them the operating manual and go, okay, bye. You know, we want to be having regular check-ins and genuinely listening to them. How is it going for you? What What's working for you? What's not working? And listen. How are you going to take a view of their performance and provide feedback and guidance where needed? And this is where it comes to that ability and willingness to have difficult conversations. And something that I found really helpful here is I've grown and taken on different leadership roles in various businesses, organizations, is trying on leadership qualities that I've seen in others. So just ask yourself, think, you know, it could be somebody you've worked for, could be somebody you've worked with, could just be somebody in your life. You just see the way that they are operating with such grace and humanness, but a kind of leadership charisma that you think, that's amazing. I want some of that. And be asking, how can I try that on for size myself? How can I model what behaviors and ways of doing and being that I've seen in them? So I will leave that question there. I'm excited to know how it goes. Let me know. Just going to have some tea. You guys know I like tea. So next question. What role can the BIID, British Institute of Interior Design, play in a design business? And Is it worth being a member, especially if you're already a member of something else like House and Garden, The List, or there are other trade bodies out there? So I would start again by zooming out on this and thinking, what's my bigger picture marketing objective? How, what kind of money do I have to spend on marketing? And then let's just gather the information and think, What's going to achieve that? Where do we need to be visible to achieve our marketing goal? I think arranging a call, I think the BIID do this, arranging a call with their membership team to assess objectively what they offer is a really good idea just to see you know, whether you can think, okay, this is, this is the price that they are saying and this is what I'm going to get for that price. And then you're able to do that zoom out and think, Is this going to achieve the goals that I've got for my marketing? Because, yes, in an ideal world, we would be omnipresent. We would all be everywhere. We would be members of this trade body. We would be featured on that podcast. We would be speaking on that stage. We would have 
you know, four page spread in that magazine this month and the next magazine will be on TikTok and YouTube and, you know, all of this. I may have gone too far for some of you, but <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It it would be nice to be able to be omnipresent, that our clients can see us and find us anywhere. But that isn't realistic because especially the early stages of business, we don't have the focus, but we often don't have the budget to achieve that. So we have to be really mindful about what it's worth paying for that are going to achieve our goals. So my understanding of BIID, and I will absolutely hold my hands up and say, we were not, my studio, my business partner, I, we were not members of BID. We did think about it. Um, and it's a personal membership. So you would apply as a designer rather than as the business. Did we miss anything from not being a member? I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, I also have lots of clients who are members and get some benefit from it. I know lots of designers who have got lots of work through the BID, through having work referred to them. They've kind of fitted the brief between someone's approached the BID, they're in the right location or the right kind of studio, and that pairing takes place. They get an email from the BID and that leads to a project. So it can be a lead generation source. I have other designers who I don't get any work from them. So that would be something to interrogate in conversation with them is how does that work in practice? If I'm a registered BID member, how is this actually going to support my lead generation? I believe the BID also can offer quite a lot of networking, speaking on panels or stages if you'd like to elevate your personal profile and your personal brand. And then there's a kind of professional guidance element. So there's, I think there's a legal hotline and there's HR. Um, there's different places that you can get legal advice around being a designer. So there are absolutely benefits there, but it's for you to assess, are these the benefits that I need? And can I get them in another way? Is the price that the BID are quoting me for membership, is that worth it? Is that going to be a good use of my money? Or is it better putting that money into something else right now? Because often when it comes to, to marketing or any kind of business investment, so much of it is just about asking ourselves, what is the potential return on investment of this? Is it going to be worth that cost? If I can see the return on investment, if I can see how it will bring in new leads, how it will save me money somewhere on legal advice or insurance or anything else, then yes, it's I can see that ROI, it's going to be worth it. But if it's simply a cost and it's simply a, well, it's an, an opportunity out there, I could be a BID member, so maybe I should be, then we want to be more um, discerning than that. So really the question for you is, what are your marketing goals? What budget do you have for marketing? And if being a member of the BID was to take X amount of that budget, what results would you need to get to have made that a worthwhile investment? And I would just sit with that. I would absolutely get the information from the BID so you can hear from them directly, the process of membership, what you get, and then you, you've got an idea of the price, but be asking those questions as you go through that. Whew, okay. 
I have been talking for a while. I've got one more question, which I'm actually not going to answer, but it's a question around how to launch. So because I've actually gone into this in detail on a previous episode, go back and listen to episode two, which is all about how to launch a new service. That's going to really support you on this. So I won't cover that again now. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to hold off now. We've gone for a little while and I hope that has been super helpful to you in helping you move forward. I always love to get feedback on the answers that I've given you and just hearing what moves you guys are making, what's landed, what's resonated, what shifted things for you. Drop me a DM on Instagram. Hit you know, reply to this email when you've got the episode or when you send in your questions, let me know. I absolutely love to hear. And I'm super excited to see your questions come in for the next Q&A. Just a word on submitting questions. I obviously I have a number of questions to answer. So really think about what are the most important questions. If you submit 20 questions, I'm not going to be able to answer them all. So really be clear and focused with yourself and thinking what are the two max most important questions that I've got and if I have time to answer both I will but it may be that I go to one and then we roll over to the next one the second thing just to say is when you're submitting your questions please please be concise and clear I don't need all of the context and all of the background you don't need to spend all of your time providing me with a you know huge huge download My team will get the question and if they think we need further details, they'll send a message back and say, could you just clarify this? But really, it's about asking super powerful questions. Practice that. Practice asking really good questions and you will get really good responses. Be clear in your question. You will. I will be clear in the answer. Cool. I will see you on the next episode. I've really enjoyed connecting with you all here today. Have a wonderful, wonderful month and see you on the next one.